Welcome to LA Together, a storytelling project by the City of Los Angeles Human Relations Commission. I'm Stacy Twilley, a commissioner and your host. Our Human Relations Commission is an outspoken, lively, and diverse group of folks who like to talk a lot. But nothing derails our meeting agenda faster than one topic. And from what I can tell, it's the only thing we all have in common. We are all Dodgers fans. Everyone's favorite player is undeniably Mookie. But Freddie, Julio, and Clayton are arguably just as important. And diplomatically, it's a three-way tie for favorite player of all time, Sandy Koufax, Justin Turner, and Fernando Valenzuela. Every commissioner seems to have their own Dodger Stadium story, too. Like getting their first job as a 14-year-old, selling souvenirs, and lying about their age to do it. Or going to the stadium as a 9-year-old Mexican immigrant and feeling, for the first time, like part of L.A., a city that until then had felt alien in so many ways. But when a commissioner referred to the traumatic history of Dodger Stadium, I had to admit I had no idea what she was talking about and I'm sure I'm not the only Dodger fan who didn't know this story. At the start of the 20th century, there were three thriving neighborhoods on the land where Dodger Stadium now sits. Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop were home to over 1,000 families. It was one of the few places in LA where Mexican-Americans could legally own land. In the early 1950s, the city of Los Angeles declared this area a slum. It seized the land through the use of eminent domain to make space for public housing. Almost all of the Mexican-American families living there were forced to sell the homes they had built by hand, with the promise that modern public housing would soon be available. But then a new mayor canceled those public housing plans, and for years, the area, now referred to as Chavez Ravine, sat in limbo, with a few remaining families sticking it out in the hollowed-out neighborhoods. In 1958, the city reached a deal to bring the Brooklyn Dodgers to L.A. Part of the deal included building a world-class stadium in Chavez Ravine. The remaining families living there were brutally and forcibly removed from their homes to make way for Dodger Stadium. In this episode, we'll hear from the direct descendants of two families who lived on the land now buried under Dodger Stadium. Both were part of the tight-knit neighborhood of Palo Verde, and they share how the trauma of their family histories has been passed down for generations. We wanted to know, is there a way to make amends and honor the families forcibly removed from Chavez Ravine and still love our L.A. Dodgers? If the listeners are listening, they need to understand one important thing. Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop is no different than the communities that you live in today. That's Vincent Montalvo. His grandparents sold their family home in Chavez Ravine and left before the evictions became physical. His grandparents are now in their 90s and are still sharing stories with him about the old neighborhood. Vincent talked with Melissa Arechiga. Her grandparents refused to sell their home and stayed in Chavez Ravine until they were forcibly removed on May 8th 1959, a day known as Black Friday. Melissa's family was featured in the national news that day 
when sheriff's deputies arrived at the Arechiga family home to evict them. The officers walked up the stairs of her grandparents' home, kicked the door in, and forced their way into the living room. Photographs show four deputies dragging her aunt out the door by her arms and legs, kicking and screaming. Melissa's mother, then a young child, can be seen crying in the background. And once the Arechigas were evicted, a journalist took a family photo as they sat on the curb watching bulldozers level their home. One of my first memories was uh, my mother sharing it with me as a little girl. And um, I'm not exactly sure what we were going through or why she was sharing it with me. Um, But I remember her telling me, yeah, the police showed up and they kicked in the doors and they dragged us out and everybody was screaming. And, And as a little girl, like I was probably like under the age of 10, I didn't really understand what she was trying to convey to me or like what was the purpose of you sharing this with me but I did understand that it was very emotional it was traumatic and it as a kid I was frightened by what I was being told but I also felt her like frightened yeah I just remember her telling me and I just was I just had a lot of questions like why what happened you know and she just kept saying that they came in the house and that they put her in the cop car and everybody was screaming and that um you know, that she was given a sack lunch and that um, that she was hungry and she wanted to eat it and that my Auntie Lola was like, don't eat their food. So, you know, she had to throw her food and stuff like that. And now, you know, me and my mom joke about it, that that was her first act of resistance at such a young age. And, you know, that's the extent of what I can, I feel comfortable sharing right now with at this point. But there wasn't a lot of conversation about it in the house because it was so traumatic. It was so detrimental to my family. Like, the best thing that I can say is that that experience broke my family. So my dad is was born in Aguascalientes, Mexico, and he met my mom somewhere in the 70s, um, early 70s. My dad had no understanding of what happened at Dodger Stadium with my grandparents. So when my dad arrived, my dad arrived during Fernando Mania. And his initial thought was, oh, my God, isn't it great that finally in the U.S. you have a Mexican player that we can see. He's from the rancho. I can relate to that because I'm from the ranch. And he speaks like us. He looks like us. He don't even comb his hair. That's what my dad told me. And the only thing that my dad could do was to take me to a game and buy me my jacket, right? And I'll never forget my grandfather's face when we came home because we lived in Echo Park. So we were right in the backyard of Dodger Stadium. And my grandpa just said, you know what? I don't want to talk to you no more. What you've done. And my dad had no clue whatsoever what happened. No clue. They never spoke to my dad for almost 15, 20 years. That's how big the impact was within our family because my dad did not know. When I confronted my grandfather recently about it, he just told me, he goes, look, I was mad and I shouldn't have been that way. But the pain, the anger, how it just rises up. You want to cry. Then there's that point where the anger and the rage comes in and they mix and it becomes a toxic environment in you. And this is what that inherited trauma feels like. How does somebody come into your house, drag you out and then bulldoze? I can't even begin to imagine that as much as it makes me sad, it makes my blood boil. Because I know that, um, like, I've always been a very strong individual, and I know that my family has always been strong, so I can't even imagine, like, what that experience 
would have been, you know, like I resonate when I see those videos of my grandmother picking up the rocks and throwing them at the police. You know, I would have probably ran and fought with the police too, or, you know, pulled their hair. I don't know. You know, I just, it's, it's very upsetting. It's, it just takes away from who you are when you can't fight back. I, th I think one of the most important things to remember is this. The city and the Dodgers and the agencies took the land. They didn't have this discussion we're having now, whether that we wanted our land taken or not. They just took it. You know, my mother had shared these stories with me when I was a young girl. And now fast forwarding maybe, I'd say 15, 20 years later, here I am sitting in a UC Berkeley class for a requirement for one of my well, for my major, and we're learning about the history of Los Angeles and the development of San Francisco, you know, it, it's all interesting and stuff, right, as you're learning, but then to see in a large classroom on a very big uh, projector, and you see this enormous picture the size of a motion picture of your family, and there's a transition of, of learning history and it becoming your family. It's a different kind of experience because, yes, you're talking history, but you're talking about my family. And so to see visually some of the things that my mother had shared with me as a child on such a large screen in a classroom that, that felt very unwelcoming around a bunch of privileged people, it was frightening. It was scary. It was... I didn't know what to feel. I know that for a split second, I considered getting up and leaving because I just didn't feel that there was the respect for the subject, for my people, for just all of it. I just felt like I didn't want to be sitting here around all these people and these very entitled people with their snide remarks and stuff like that. But at the same time, I was like, I'm not going to run either. I'm going to sit here. And I'm going to hold space for my family. And uh, I did. And I'm glad that the class ended shortly after. And at the, at the end of the class, I approached my professor. And at that time, my professor had let me know that they were curious as if that was my family because of my last name. It started in 1951 when the city and uh, the housing authority decided they wanted public housing. And what we found out in the records were there was a lot of talk about public housing, which then turned into the Red Scare. And then we came to a deal where people said the city never contacted the Dodgers or anybody for this land, that it was specifically 100% for public housing. That was its good deed it was supposed to do. But then we had people like Wilkinson, who was head of the department at the time in charge of issuing the, the eviction notices and the intimate domain notices for the people, and the one thing that he mentioned to us when we did do an interview with him, and I said, you know, I heard that some of the community members said that you guys threatened them. And he says, I hate to admit that we did. We had a, a, a program that we had to get going, and people would not give up their homes. So people have the falsehood or the knowledge or history that our people wanted to leave. They never did. And the threat that they was given to them is that if you don't sell your house, we'll condemn it and you'll get nothing. That was typical power at the time of the city, right? And... Once they understood that part, they were scared. Like we see in our communities today, the same symptoms are in our communities of today. They don't have resources, legal resources to, 
ask or talk about or even have a conversation in the community with. And so that followed up with the evictions in 1959, which is also known as Black Friday, in which at that point they were saying, that's it. You guys need to get out. We're not going to, you know, hassle. And there was a battle in City Hall. And what a lot of people don't know is that there was even a lawsuit where the judge even said that they overstretched their powers of intimate domain. So these are a lot of things that were left out of the, the narrative that they use around Chavez River. So the story goes, most of our people are from the same regions of Mexico, Durango, Chihuahua, parts of Jalisco. As far as we know from, from what our, my grandparents have told me specifically, that once they understood that they had ground to settle on when they were having issues in Mexico, word was sent back to Mexico to have people come and actually plop themselves on the land. And at that point, they were still wondering if they were ever going to own the land. And that's kind of like the, the weird part in the city is there were deeds, but this was during a time of redlining where there were actually covenants that prevented Mexican people from owning homes, but not in Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. So this is why sometimes I tell people the story is so important to the L.A. history housing because people believe that most Mexican indigenous people never attempted to own a home or saved in a time where you couldn't. And they end up coming to Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop, and they settle there, and they get property. And from there, they grow these really nice communities, but that they did come from Mexico. You know, I think that it's important that we really understand what they built there and what they started there, you know, because they really did, when they came there, slept on the ground and built from the ground up. Every piece, every nail, every piece of wood, every screw, window, everything was, you know, brought up there, you know, and it wasn't an easy way to bring things up there because there wasn't a lot of paved roads and different things like that. So just thinking about that, like how to even build a house, just the, the intentional thoughts that went into everything that they constructed of how they um, built things, got along with each other, changed economics, you know, money, businesses, uh, helped each other. It's just I think that a lot of us romanticize and think about what it would be like to have those kind of communities currently. And so um, as we go into this and learn more and more about what exactly they had created up there, it just becomes very emotional, very, very emotional. And I'm, I'm honored to be able to open up space and hold space and, and hopefully tell their story with the justice that it deserves. I think that history is super important to L.A. because I think it talks to the six, almost 60 to 70 percent Latinos that represent here. They need to know more about themselves and their contributions. The other part is, is the narrative that we start to control our own narratives of our stories. Since now, you know, people have, have uh, misinterpreted and mistitled it with Chavez Ravine. That's also something that the Dodgers took on every time they announce it. Dodger fans only know it as Dodger Stadium, not Chavez Ravine, the houses that were destroyed to build Dodger Stadium. Well, it's good to start off with calling them by their correct names. And they were known as Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. And I think that that's very important that we never move away from the truth of how our families identified their communities that they built from the ground up. I think that we should always honor that and never try to change that narrative. I'm sorry. I just, um, you know, it, it brings up a lot of emotion. Sorry. 
because when you look in those stands and you see all those brown people and all the money that they're giving, imagine if we invested that money in ourselves and really created the things that we need, that we feel and see and understand that we're lacking. You know, when we look at the majority of the of the fans, right, and some of them are gang members, right, and some of them are affiliated with different gangs, different issues, and we always hear the story about, you know, you can't cross this barrio to that barrio, right, the end of the street. But the Dodgers is like the UN for gang members because they they technically all go to the game. Peace treaty. I'm pretty sure that they have sat next to each other, and it kind of erases that gang mentality, right? Until you get out of the stadium, then we see the fights. But I think it's something for everyone to think about, like how we can change so much for a game, but we cannot change something that will benefit ourselves and our children. Back to going how did me and Vincent meet, and we had both agreed that what um, had happened to our families in the three communities, um, they needed justice and that it was time to create something so that we could move forward to kind of uh, establish that, hey, this is an organization, we're coming together, and we're this is serious. This isn't just um, two little Mexicans that are upset, you know, two little indigenous Mexicans <laughs> that are upset. You know, that this is serious, that we understand that we're going to put this together from the ground up so that we could be taken seriously and that they would understand that we mean business. So we formed Buried Under the Blue which I think is a great name because it's very telling in um, helping you to understand and visualize those three communities that are buried under the stadium. I think, you know, when, when we look at that, it's, it's, such, it's not hard when you have the resources. And that's one thing I talk about a lot about Buried Under the Blue and how we provide that in the community is, you know, people ask us to blame. And if you're not a person of color, you'll never understand that, you know, we've been done wrong by the city, the sheriff's housing authority. That question for us is everybody in government. And when you dig deeper, you even look at the policies based in racism. Even if someone was elected good, they could not make a good policy because it's all set in racism. And I think for us, we ask that all agencies bear equal responsibility because it took each and every one of them for the housing authority to create the project, the city of Los Angeles to enact intimate domain for the project, and then for the city of Los Angeles to then hand it over to the Los Angeles Dodgers, and we still gave them $2 million to be able to uh, grade the hills that was also an environmental disaster, they're the ones to blame. Any stolen property should be returned to the rightful owner Dodgers are in possession of stolen property. So it's not a matter of what they want to do, but if they believe in the laws that they stand by, right? Right? So then, I mean, what is the argument? You're in possession of stolen property. Each one of those departments should pay out to the families, not just one. And, you know, far too often we hear the tale of, it was the city only, and I tell people, okay, let's blame the city all at once. But there's a problem with that under the laws of today, even under the colonial law, that the Dodgers are still in possession of stolen property. You can't get away from it. The land was taken wrongfully, and that's why we have to have it back, and we need to pay respect even to, even to the indigenous people that were there prior to us. Mm -hmm. 
And this is the awakening of what I hope today people understand what real land back is. And it's tough for us because we're talking at two different levels of what reparations is. Because right now at the state level, reparations is being talked about from the level after the indigenous completely erasing them. In order for us to even discuss, even on our platform, reparations, we must acknowledge the first people of the territory. Without that, we're repeating the whole colonial system all over again. So I think a lot of, a lot of times people don't stop to think about those things and how it impacts. But, but if the listeners are listening, they, have, they need to understand one important thing. We're no different. Palo Verde, La Loma, Bishop is no different than the communities that you live in today. So something that me and Melissa talked about was it would be such a great idea to also ask that we have three community centers named after the three communities of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop that would carry those values into the community with education, the proper narratives of their stories, to share everything that we learned on how to preserve our history, that we can now share it with community members, with podcasts, with video, oral history and work with schools so that we can start getting our history in. Because that oral history that comes from our family is a traditional indigenous way of passing information from generation to generation. Like me personally, I hold about at least six generations of my family's history. To us, that's sacred. That, that's worth more than any money that we have now. Because without those stories, I don't know about my great-grandparents who, told, who my grandparents told me about. You know, we didn't know those stories until they told us. So that is very important to keep it sacred in, this, in our education component and also to talk more about policy. And that's another level of Buried Under the Blue that we'll be seeking down the road is housing policy. How can we look at city policy, how it really affects it, and how we know it's rooted in racism and how to change it? Well, we do have the list of our demands out. And I mean, I think that that's a good place to come to the table and start, right? And so with the petition... The first thing that's on there is a public apology. But like any good apology, right, it requires action. So it's not just empty words and an empty gesture. All apologies must and require work. And so therefore, that's where the other parts of the component come in to our petition and saying, you know, the reparations for both the renters and the homeowners, the three community centers, uh, the monument and funding for these three community spaces. But also, you know, again, to the land, you know, because all land back should start and must start with the indigenous people of the land. We've really sat down and we really thought long and hard, like, what does it really look like to make things right so that we can all go on our healing journey? Because yeah. until this happens or we sit down and start this, there is no healing. That's it for this episode of LA Together. Thanks again to our guests, Vincent Montalvo and Melissa Arechiga. For more information about this episode, visit civilandhumanrights.lacity.org. And for more information about Vincent and Melissa's organization, visit buriedundertheblue.com. Join us next week when two Native American tribal leaders talk about what it means for Angelinos to be living on land that originally belonged to their nations. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. LA Together is presented by the LA Civil Human Rights and Equity Department and the Human Relations Commission. 
The LA Together team includes Commissioners Courtney Morgan-Green, Angelica Montero, Melanie De La Cruz, Narinjan Khalsa, and the staff of the Civil Rights Department, Francisco Ortega, Mark Pompanen, and Tajwar Khan. Special thanks to LA Civil Rights Executive Director, Capri Maddox. The episode was produced by me, Stacy Twilley, and the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Ariana Rodriguez was the associate producer, and our coordinating producer and audio editor was Willis Seidenberg. Our theme music was composed by Maximus Chan. Special thanks to Dean Willow Bay and the entire production team at the Annenberg Media Center. <laughs>